Take one. This is Tim Anderson, the Appraiser's Advocate, and have we got a great show for you today. On today's show, we've got Diana Jacob, one of the finest, one of the foremost appraisers in the United States. She's a USPAP instructor. She's certified in many states. She's been doing this for a long time. Diana, thank you for being with me today. You and I have known each other a long time. You're well qualified to do appraisals, to consult on appraising, etc. Would you be kind enough to give us a short version of your qualifications well, I'd be happy to, Tim, and thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with your audience today. I started in Louisiana before certification, and I did so because I thought it was a way for me to work a schedule that would also allow me as a single mom at the time to take care of my 13-year-old. When I got into the appraisal business, I started hearing the rumors of certification, and then, of course, ultimately found out certification was going to happen. So I became very active in that process. I was the person that was rarely called upon by local lenders because way back then, women didn't do the appraisal business. It was the reason you don't belong here is because it's a locker room mentality and you're a lady and you just don't need to be around it. So, of course, I took that as a challenge and said, I think I can do this and uh, move forward. I actually went out and took over 200 hours of education before I ever even did the very first appraisal because I wanted to be sure that I had the education to do a good job. I had done so knowing that no one else was doing that. They would take bits and pieces of education here and there, but they hadn't taken it in such a big chunk as I had. So before I might be even hit the street, I was highly educated in the field of appraisal. It's like anything else. You can read all you want. If you don't have the experience, the two don't go together. Now, it helps when you start in having that background. And obviously, our government and our leaders understand that. And that's why appraisers today have to have both. But that's how I got my start. I couldn't really find anyone that wanted to work with me because, again, I was a girl, they were guys, didn't really have a place for me. But I, I went on, marched forward, and was the one that got the assignments nobody else wanted. The house that sat on an active fault line and they were getting a divorce. Just odd, unusual assignments along the way. I then certification came about. I became resident certified in Louisiana, taking that very first test. And my reason for going residential at the time was that they had told me that because I'd been so active in the process that I would be judged very harshly. There was going to be a lot of scrutiny over my appraisal report that had to be USPAP compliant. Well, at the time I was appraising, there wasn't a USPAP. And so for me to make the safest bet, I chose to be a residential appraiser knowing that I could comply with USPAP they were developing at the time. <laughs> That's how long ago it was. Uh, I then moved to North Carolina and I took my general certification exam there. And then I moved back to Louisiana. I did for a while practice in the state of Georgia. I no longer hold that certification, but I did at one time have a general certified right to practice in Georgia because I had appraised 
those 200 houses that were contaminated by two Superfund sites. I eventually was so engrossed in the USAP that I actually was asked to uh, join the Education Coalition of the Appraisal Foundation sponsors, who was part of developing that very first USAP course. I also sat on KFAC on the ASB Issues Committee and throughout the years have talked about, taught, and trained others in that field of that particular document. I've always been fascinated by appraisal and appraisal issues because they're always unique, and yet there's a consistency. If we are following that consistent plan, that appraisal process, and we do it correctly, regardless of how difficult the data is to obtain, we have developed a critical reasoning that allows us to go forward with the data we have and make some sense of it so that other people can rely on it to make their decisions. That's kind of my background, my hobbies, cooking and gardening. I uh, raised three beautiful children and eight grandchildren. So that's me. Diana, that is a wide and varied background. Now, something that, that you, uh, at, at which you merely hinted and something that uh, needs to be brought out is given your background with USPAP, you were also one of the very first people to take the instructor's class, the instructor's exam, and most importantly, pass that exam, were you not? There were only five of us that passed, and I was one of the five. There were 40 of us that took that exam. It was a very difficult exam to take, mainly because they weren't really sure how they wanted to go about asking those high-level intensity questions. And I helped them understand after I got out of there in that exam is that the level of expectation of understanding of USAP was just so deep. Most appraisers don't desire to learn it that deeply. And I said, I, I don't know that you've done anything other than measure how deep we can go in our understanding. And he said, you know, Diana, what we really wanted was somebody that could stand in front of a classroom and no matter what question came at them, they would know how to answer it. And that's why we made the test as difficult as it is. There's still not very many in number of instructors, AQB, top certified instructors. I actually was able and asked and served proudly to go out with them in the very beginning when they came with this national course and assist in teaching that very first course to use PAP instructors. It was it was a privilege and it was an honor and I uh, I enjoyed it and I, I've always enjoyed being on the use PAP committee because I just think there's such a lack of understanding in how the document is put together, why it's put together the way it is. I think if you can know and understand that, it just makes the reasoning easier to comprehend. I've also written a few books. I, um, I don't know if I'm up to 30 or not, somewhere like that. The reason that I write is because I can talk to people on a down-to-earth level. I'm what you see is what you get. I try very hard to make this make sense to the layperson. And if I can make it make sense to the layperson, I know the appraiser with their extensive expectation of education can get it. So I enjoy that. And I act as a consultant to a lot of appraisers. And that makes me feel good that I'm able to inspire other appraisers to want to do more. And that's me. Diana, in addition to what you just went through and the fact you're still a USPAP instructor and the fact that you've written a whole bunch of books, you also teach classes, do you not? 
I used to teach quite a few, and now I go out once a month, sometimes twice a month. There was a time when my teaching schedule was very heavy, but I cut back on it, as you well know. I mean, you've been there, done that. Travel can be difficult as you get older. Yeah, Gotta but you're, you're, not, you're, not old, you're not old yet, Diana. <laughs> well, thank you. But I'm going to tell you, I'm excited. I'm going to be 70 in May, and I am thrilled that I have been able to enjoy a profession as long as I have and have no plans of retiring. It's an exciting business to be in. I get disappointed. I get hurt. It's like everyone else. I, the changes drive us crazy. You know, nothing ever really allows us an opportunity to move forward and make money if it doesn't change. You know, our life is about change. The technology has been extremely difficult for people in my age group, the younger appraisers, they seem to adapt to it. But then we have the opposite end of the problem. They lack the critical reasoning sometimes that comes with experience. And we, of course, don't know which button that we need to push all the time in order to make it work. I think when we can work together, we sure do a good job. Diana, let's talk about uh, your expertise uh, for a moment. You indicated that you still consult. Now, most appraisers are out there working very hard, and sometimes things get challenging. Uh, sometimes we don't have very much time to complete the appraisal report. Sometimes we, oh, heaven forbid, we underbid the job and we're trying to finish as quickly as possible. Now, when an appraiser sends a report into you for your quiet private review, tell us what it is, uh, some of the strengths that you find in these reports that you get and some of the weaknesses you find. In terms of the weaknesses, and I'll go there first, most appraisers that I have come in contact with do what I call fear-based appraisal, meaning did I put all the sentences in there that I needed to put to say all the things that they require me to say, and they miss even the flow or why they were asked or or when is it appropriate to say this or that? I find it disappointing when I'm looking at a lot at 5,000 square feet and the appraiser has a comment that the land is not suitable for agricultural development. Why would you put that sentence in there? A lot of times I get frustrated with some of the canned comments that have absolutely no bearing whatsoever, shouldn't have even been considered, but that's fear-based appraisal because someone got onto them. I had an appraiser called me two weeks ago and he said, I just got told that I was supposed to copy and paste direct quote from USPAP about my three-year experience. Is that true? And I said, no. USPAP was never written to have copy and paste. A lot of appraisers do copy and paste out of it, but no, it's not required, nor is it expected to be a verbatim document. I find there is still an amazing amount of misunderstanding about what happened. Appraisers write according to how they think they can have the least expectation of being called in on the carpet for something wrong, as opposed to, let's have a conversation, you and me, the client and myself. I saw you had a need to know what this is about. I went out there. I looked in neighborhood. I looked at the subject. I gathered the data that I thought was relevant to solve the problem of value credibly. And this is how I did it. The 
is what I gathered. This is what I did with the information I gathered. And these were the conclusions that I found. And when I considered all of those together, I reasoned them through. And this is why I have concluded my market value or whatever value it is that they're doing. Most appraisers don't approach it like that. They're about, is this what goes in the field? Did I say that? They miss the boat about what an appraisal report is. And the appraisal report is a communication of that specialist, that analysis that was conducted. So I think that's where the weaknesses come. Where some of the strengths come is that you are seeing appraisers who have learned by leaps and bounds the needs that they have and the devil's in the details. One of the things that has happened, I believe, that has been good is that all of the software groups that these reports run through bring to surface to the appraiser the knowledge that people are looking for more than just an opinion without fact, an opinion without research. We work areas and we know them well, and we can go up in many cases and say, oh, that house is probably going to be in the range of, and you know what, we'll be pretty darn close because we studied that market, because we're in that market. But there were a lot of other things that went into that statement that house probably will go somewhere between. Because what went into that statement was not only a knowledge of that market, but let's get more detail, a knowledge of the land use in that market, a knowledge of the demographics of that market, a knowledge of what will probably change over the next few years or has been proposed to be changed. When you start thinking about all of the part of an appraisal, you realize that it becomes almost rote. And we forget, because we know it so well, how to break it down into the pieces and say, here's where you start. This is the location. Take a look. Take a look at where you are. Take a look at what it took to get here and ask the question, why would anybody want to be in this location? And those are the things that we fail to communicate, but it isn't necessarily the things we fail to know. I think we know a lot more than what we're saying. If I can summarize what you're saying, Diana, you're saying that appraisers know what it is they're supposed to do. They basically know how to do it. They basically know when to do it. But the issue may be the appraisers don't explain why they did what they did. Do do I understand correctly? That is correct. In fact, when I call them and say, why did you do that? They will say, what do you mean? Why did I do that? You're supposed to. But why? Well, I don't know. You're just supposed to. But think, well, now that's, that's where we have to stop and say, let's connect the dots of why they're supposed to. You know, appraisal is a process for a reason. Yes, we have a final goal, but we start off with little pieces that relate to it. You know, I can't snap my fingers and have a chocolate cake. I have to think about why I even want the cake. Oh, that's a you shame. We, we'd love to be able to snap fingers and get chocolate <laughs> cakes. I think it's as simple as beginning with what's the intended use? Why did they call you? So many of our residential appraisers are about mortgages, and so they tend to hone in on mortgage regulations. But I think the appraiser told me, I need your help. Can you come look at this? So I went, and here's what the appraiser said. I really like this guy. I just would really like to see him get at least 500000 and I said, well, we need to stop what we're doing right now. Is this about because you like somebody or is this because you believe this is what the properties worth? Well, I just think, you know, it's complicated. It's a hard one to appraise because there's not a lot of data. And I said, I get all that. 
I want to go back to why you want to get 500000 Well, I mean, that's what he needs. I said, he needs for what? For the loan. And I said, okay, let's stop again. Is that your job? Diana, he's a real good guy. Oh, I, I get that. And, and I like doing good things for good people. But let's do the better good. What would happen if I asked you to take all of the money that you had amassed in your retirement account, in your inheritance, and everything you had and say, okay, you're 500000 I want you to fund this loan. Would it still be worth 500000 The appraiser would say, well, now that's a little bit extreme. I said, not really. That's what this is about. It's not that we don't want to do good jobs. It's that we have to understand there is a risk any time that we are doing an appraisal. And so when we have that risk and when we talk about underwriting alone, we aren't the ones that are funding, but we are the ones that are telling them, go ahead, write the check. And when we have that kind of power over decision-making, we need to understand the risks that are involved with the uncertainty of investing. And it doesn't matter what you invest in. There's always a bit of uncertainty, and it's no less than real estate. Real estate investing has a measure or a margin of uncertainty. That is why it's so important we become very careful about each step of the appraisal process. You wrote a, a wonderful article about does the lender have a right to question the boundary of a neighborhood? And you explained to them very well that sufficient understanding demands understanding why is north, south, east, and west defined as it is. Just a simple step like that can contribute huge to the credibility or to the lack of credibility if they miss even understanding the boundary of the neighborhood. I think we have to somehow get back to the appraiser, the importance of communicating what they did and why. You know, in the new use path this year, there's an FAQ that's in the uh, review section, and it talks about a reviewer opining the analysis was not done because it was not put into the appraisal report. First time I'd ever seen anything like that where they were asking for more details about the analysis in the appraisal report. But the response from the ASB in that FAQ was, yes, the reviewing appraiser can opine that there is a deficiency in the communication of any analysis done, which calls them into question whether it was or was not done. The pendulum is swinging, and we as appraisers are going back to the way it was during the certification process when they were saying we had an SNL crisis, failures all around us, and we have to avoid that failure again by being more detailed. We became complacent, regulators became complacent, and then we had the housing crisis. And once again, back to more details are needed. And now we're past the housing crisis, but we're moving into an era where we recognize that we're lacking funding for the underwritten loans that should they go into foreclosure. Once again, we may have to do some bailing out. How do we avoid that? We avoid it by saying to the risk takers and the risk makers, this is what I know. I gathered this information from this source. I told you what I gathered. I told you how I came to that conclusion. You know, how often something as simple as effective aid. So many appraisers just speculate what the effective aid is. And there's no evidence as to how they got there. 
And they were like, well, anybody can look at it and tell it's not, certainly not more than 15 years old. Are you sure about that? Did you do research into it? Has there been no gutting or renovation? And I'm not saying that it is, but there needs to be a basis. We have lost our touch with the need to say, this is what an analysis is. It isn't just a, somebody told me the other day when I asked them how they got an adjustment and they said, said, I do air appraisal. If I don't know what it is, I just pull it out of the air. I said, you know, that's not even funny. It's offensive to me. I don't always have the data I would like to have to do quantified judgment, but I certainly have the ability to tell you how I made a qualified judgment. I have the ability to tell you what I looked at and how I connected the dot to make a qualified judgment. And when you don't do that, then it's very, it's a slap in the face to the appraisal profession. So what you're saying is we need to avoid atmospheric extraction. Is that correct? That's a fancy way to put air appraisal. There I, you go. I, I like that air appraisal. I'm going to remember that. Now, yeah, it, I never heard of it. Diana, you meant, you've mentioned now at least three times the concept of risk. And it's not the risk the appraiser enters into in accepting the appraisal assignment and doing the appraisal. You're talking about the risk on the part of the client, the risk that the lender, the investors are going to take. Now, expand on that if you would be so kind. You're making it sound as if an appraisal, something that presents an opinion of value, really has something somewhere along the line to do with the risks the lender is taking in making the mortgage. You you want to explain that to us? Absolutely. If I take an animal to the vet or loved one to the doctor, I know something's wrong and I know it's not how they are supposed to be behaving. They just don't know what's wrong. So I bring them to that professional with absolute trust that they're going to know and that they're going to give me an answer and possibly some medications or change of routine. They're going to do that, being able to help my pet or, or my loved one get better. When a lender comes to us and says, we have a loan we'd like to make. We've checked out the borrower. Their credit seems fine. It's just time for us to know, is this property really worth what they believe it's worth? Can we put our investments there? And remember, when they say yes to a loan, these loans are put into investor pools. And so they share a risk with all of these others. And everybody goes into this pool understanding that no one is absolute. You know, if you think about it, the definition of value is not a fact. It's an opinion. It needs to be a supported opinion because of the risk. Because when things fail, when loans go down, who's going to pick up the pieces? You know, it's one thing to get the person who made the loan out of the dwelling, but then who do you sell it to? And would they be willing to pay the difference and the deficit? You know, market change, have we understood that possibly foreclosures are going to happen at different effective dates? We can't stop market changes, but we can say, this is what I believe is most probable, and this is why. And from that point forward, then the lender move on to their other risk 
analysis that they do to make good decisions about the loan. One of the things that I have found, even in the studying of the pre-printed certification form, is that a lot of those certifications are mechanical and they're geared towards risk parameters that lenders have put together. I know if I can have this appraisal where the emphasis is on the sales approach and minimal on the other approaches. I know if they will do this or do that, then I have a higher degree of comfortable level of making the decision about the loan. We don't need to be lenders. Our role is to be diligent. Our role is to develop an opinion that is credible enough that if we had to say to our family, all of our future, I just put on 1522 Broadway. Let's hope they pay pay their bill. And I'm not sure we've communicated that as well as we should. Let's talk about the concept uh, again, uh, Diana, of uh, risk. Let's talk specifically about the neighborhood section of the reporting form. Why does the lender get all excited about what's going on in the neighborhood? I mean, they're going to make the loan or they're not going to make the loan. What What's the big deal about understanding the neighborhood boundaries and neighborhood description and market conditions? You know, it can begin with even something as simple as why do we have a census tract number? And that goes all the way back to the parameters of loan allowance to lenders who to follow the rules that they have. And this is all related to fair housing. They have agreed to lend in a certain area which contains certain census tracts. So it starts there. When we start looking at neighborhood boundaries, we need to understand that sometimes you have more than one neighborhood, in fact, more often than not, especially in broad zip code areas or census tract areas. The reason that it's relevant is that there are direct influences on market behavior that are locational. And when we get them too narrow, we miss part of the story. And when we get them too broad, we don't have enough of the story. So it's important that we look at what type of influences impact that dwelling. Is to go to valuation advisory number four. You can find that on the appraisal foundation website then this particular one says you know appraisers make i'm just going to read it direct quote appraisers make a distinction between the neighborhood in which a property is situated and the market area in which the comparable properties will be found and how they are located. Market area is formally defined as the geographic or location delineation of a market for a specific property of real estate. That's what we're talking about. Defined as the geographic location delineation of a market for a specific category of real estate. So when we look at residences, for instance, there's a reason that they're located in that area. That location delineation plays a huge role because that's where we need to find similar comparable transactions, those that would compete with the subject. It is in a neighborhood, A uh, they define it and it says neighborhood boundaries in which the subject is located may contain residential properties as well as non-residential. In a neighborhood, that's really relevant. You just gave me a boundary and it just had houses. Something real simple could be asked. Well, okay, you brought me here, but 
how far do I have to go to the grocery store? How far do I need to go get on a major transportation artery and get me to my employment? Many, 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 many years ago, when I was a real estate agent, I would ask prospective buyers, where do you want to live? And they would say, within 30 minutes of where I work or 30 minutes where I have to take so-and-so to school. And I would take where they work and I would make that the center. And then I would draw a circumference around that and say, this is everything that's located within 30 minutes. And so it was like, are you okay with any of these there? Yeah. Let's talk about the difference of the neighborhood within those 30 minutes in that circumference area. And I think as appraisers, we need to have a similar mindset of why are people wanting to live there? They want to get, everybody at the end of the day wants to get home. What is the difference between urban and suburban and rural? That becomes an issue of demand. And the people in the rural area are not, and I say this in any appraisal for rural property, the, the driver of demand is not the conformity of the residents to light residences, but it is very much the driver in a suburban and urban market. The driver of demand in a rural market is about the lifestyle. They don't want government intervention. Whereas when you get into the suburban area, what they're looking for is a distance from the main hubbub, the hustle and bustle, the traffic of the urban market, make them feel a little bit like the quiet enjoyment of the country. But at the same time, you know, they can walk their dogs and visit neighbors. And, and so it's a, I need to be able to get there within 30 minutes, but I want to be able to get home and enjoy my quiet little community. And, and so, you know, it's details like that, that appraisers, I think, need to think more about when they're talking about their neighborhood. You know, why is North North? Well, if I went any farther, I would go across a piece of land that contained a very heavily traffic artery, or maybe there's a railroad track. You know, why stop it here? You need to ask that. Where does it go? Why does it go there? And where does it stop? And why do I know it stops there? And that has a lot to do with, are you in an urban, suburban, or rural market? It's very difficult sometimes because in rural markets, your boundaries are not as easily defined because sometimes they contain the whole county or as in, we are in Louisiana, the whole parish. And there are very irregular lines uh, when you look at the shape of that. But what you're really talking about is that there is a point where the county line on the north side stops, as well as the east and south and west. Then if that's a rural market and that's where your area is, stay that. And if it's in an urban market, sometimes that neighborhood can be one side of the street and not the other because that market changes. So you tell them where it goes and you tell them why, and then they understand. That's the parameter of influence on the market behavior that I'm going to study so that I can be more accurate when I identify what truly is a comparable transaction to the subject property. Diana, you just mentioned the parameters of influence. Let's take that concept and let's transition to the concept of appraisal modernization. What are the parameters that have been influencing real estate appraisal of late? What are the parameters of modernization that are influencing appraisal of late? And what, if anything, must we do to modernize real estate appraisal? That's a really terrific question. So we'll just need to take them in pieces. 
in terms of modernization, other people, the first and foremost thing they're going to say is, when's the last time the house was wired? Because I need internet and I need connections. I have need for a more modernized lifestyle. Now, the, the typical homeowner isn't looking, and some upper volume houses are. I mean, there are some houses when you walk into them, depending on who you are, they would have done the research and all of a sudden you'll have these panelized pictures of locations that that person particularly likes. And it changes with each guest that comes in. But you have neighborhoods where they have catered to that demographic who desire to have that luxury. I think back in now almost amuses me this Alexa generation that we have, that she's just sitting there waiting for someone to tell her what to do. So you really have to study the demographics, I think, to know the answer to that. Now, that I think can help with the modernization. What was the other characteristic? I should have written it down. Damn it, I didn't. Well, talking about, uh, or, or there are those out there who say that uh, appraisal has to be modernized. And, you know, let's face it, the house across the street sells for whatever the house across the street sells for. There's nothing we can do about that. And that's about as modern as it gets because it sold yesterday. You mentioned uh, uh, your Siri. You've mentioned the fact that construction codes, construction quality, construct what is included in construction has changed. So how is it that we, you know, let's face it, real estate appraisal theory is basically left over from the 1930s. It has has real estate appraisal practice kept up with technology changes, taste changes, etc. And if it's not, what is it that needs to be modernized? with you that we have not, as a profession on a whole, kept up with a lot of the technology that's out there. All of us feared that big data. And and yet now what we're seeing is, is that big data is here and it needs to be respected and it needs to be worked with. You know, if you don't figure out how to break the horse, you can't ride him. There are things that that stallion can do that can take you to places that you've never been faster than you've ever gone. But if you don't have the control, then you don't know where you're going. I think what we have a strong need for is we as appraisers need to make a diligent effort to find out more and more about the technology that's out there. Not just what's available, but how it works. You know, there's nothing worse than figuring out how to punch the right buttons and then saying, well, what does your answer mean? And say, well, I don't know what the buttons told me. We need to know what it's doing for us. Technology is wonderful if we understand how it works the way it's supposed to work. You know, it does the analysis. It takes these formulas. Do you know the formulas? Do you know why the formulas are made up the way they are? What are those components? If it takes me an hour to two hours to manually do it, and or I can use technology and have it in an instant, well, I want to go with the technology, but I better familiarize myself and understand what it is that that technology is working with. So I think that's important. I do think we have a great need, and, and a lot of classes are put on, you put on one of the better ones, Tim, about working with statistics. I think you make it very understandable. It's not just statistics. There are other programs, too, that we can find that helps us just be better at what we do. There is a need for that. You know, way back, it was a clipboard, a pencil, and a camera. 
that's what we went out with a tape measure to do an inspection with. And if we made an error, we had our eraser on the other end of the pencil to erase it and then mark it back. Of course, now telling somebody, oh, yeah, you can just change it, it will, that would take an act of Congress. We wouldn't do that. We've come a long way. Working the tools that we have today, the iPad and the distos and the pictures, and now we have Matterports that are being set down in rooms and taking pictures 360 degrees in a blink of an eye. We have Excel spreadsheets that are with formulas, running statistics on impact, and those are things we need to learn more about so that we can understand the technology that we are buying to help us take less time to do the same level of credible analysis. Diana, I'm I'm going to ask you at this point to put your conical wizard's cap on and take a peek into the future of real estate appraisal. What changes do you see on the horizon to which appraisers are going to have to adapt? Otherwise, they're going to become dinosaurs. Where I see things going is going to require a big adjustment on, I think, all appraisers. And that's we are going to be more of a bifurcated process. Appraisers who hold that certification were granted so because they understood the principles. They understood the process. They understood the formulas. They understood what was necessary to develop credible opinions of value. What we have learned is that we don't have to do each and every step ourselves, that other people can do some of this work for us. What we need to have is a knowledge of what every piece is doing, and we have to have watchful eyes making sure those processes are followed. If we can adapt to it not just being something we touch, we can do good work and we can do it in a time frame that is beneficial. It's not just about turning it around fast. I really resent that. As I said in an article I've written, every residential appraisal report has 750 decisions. So what can we do to make sure that those 750 decisions are made credibly? And can we teach and then manage and with oversight confirm that the assistance that we're getting to help us also follows those rules and follows that decision-making process? We have more scrutiny than we've ever had before, but we don't need to be afraid of it. We need to know what it is they're looking for. We need to have open conversation with our clients. What is it that you want attention paid to? And when we get those who disagree with us, and there are many, we need to understand that they're going to come after us. We need to build a defense. And building a defense means that we credibly develop each and every step of the appraisal before we conclude it. And then and we talked about it sufficiently enough that it becomes impossible to penetrate. Diana, from a standpoint of bulletproofing the uh, uh, report, bulletproofing the appraisal, you teach a lot of classes and you cover those concepts in those classes. Uh, but just as we're getting toward the end here, are you going to be teaching any of your classes anytime soon? I will be going out throughout the year. You can look on different websites, or you could email me, and I'll send you my schedule, my what's, email what's address. Email address? Yeah, give us your email address, please. My email address is my name, Diana T. Jacob, no S, 
jaclb.com. Well, I'll be teaching this year youth cap, but I'll also be working out of a book that I recently finished called Disaster Preparedness. It's a book that helps appraisers who have to value properties that have been damaged. And where will you be giving that class? Well, it's scheduled all over. Columbia Institute through Columbia, they are the ones that sponsor that. I'll be teaching a, a host of courses and that's one of them. May I recommend to everyone who's listening today, take Diana's course on appraising after natural disasters class, and it is excellent. Let me thank you very kindly for your help today, for your advice today, and for your wisdom today. Now, before we sign off, do you have any last thing you'd like to tell the listeners? If you're to the point where you're so angry that you just don't love doing what you're doing, take a step back and ask yourself, is it that you don't love what you're doing or maybe you don't like your client? Maybe you change your client and get back to doing what you love to do. That makes sense. I appreciate you being with us, and it was good to catch up with you. I want to thank everyone for listening today. This is Tim Anderson, the Appraiser's Advocate. I'm here to help you when you need that help. Please just get in contact with me. You can do so at Tim at theappraisersadvocate.com. It will be an honor to work with you. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. And we're clear.